Hi, I'm Rajorshi Dash and you're listening to Queerness and Storytelling in India. So today I have with me Niladri R. Chatterjee, who is the professor of the Department of English in University of Kollan in West Bengal. He has co-edited the Muffled Heart Stories of the Disempowered Male and Nari Bhav, Androgeny and Female Impersonation in India. He's also the author of a novel called The Scholar. Since March 2020, he has also started posting videos on his YouTube channel. His areas of interest are masculinity studies and queer studies. Since 2010, he has been running a Facebook group called New Gender Studies. And today we are going to discuss, uh, or start rather, by discussing his new book, Entering the Maze, Queer Fiction of Krishna Gopal Mollik. So thank you so much, um, Dr. Chatterjee, for initiating this conversation. And what fascinated me was the irreverent tone, uh, perhaps even like politically incorrect pursuits of desire. And the fact that he was a student of literature, uh, you know, from I think he did his uh, Bengali uh, honors from President's University, also was employed at the Statesman, the newspaper for a while, uh, started his own publishing house. So can you tell us, like our listeners, a bit about why do you think it, it is important to translate Molik's work and how did you come across his work? Yes, uh, but actually to, to answer your second question first, um, I came across Krishnagopal Mullik because um, I had a PhD student called Shanton Mitro. And uh, Shanton Mitro is very, very well read in Bengali literature. He is, he is a bit of a detective. He is constantly looking for unusual authors. Uh, and because his PhD was on queer writing, so he was constantly on the lookout for queer writers, uh, specifically Bengali queer writers. And so, which is why one day he suddenly came up to me and he said, are you familiar with the work of Krishna Gopal Moldik? And I said, I've never heard of him. Uh, and he said that, well, maybe you could try reading his short stories. If you like his short stories, I'll give you one of his novels. Um, so I really began with his uh, short stories and I was completely uh, blown away by by the candor, by the frankness of, of the of the narratives. Uh, and I couldn't, uh, and then of course, you know, he told me that you, you do realize that he was uh, very much a, a married man. He had a child. Um, the son is now grown up. You know, the son has his own child. So to all intents and purposes, a very apparently conventional life uh, and somebody who led such a conventional life, the life of a Bengali Bhadralok. Uh, and and for him to then suddenly write, uh, you know, short stories and, and novels that are so incredibly frank about his homosexuality, I thought, I, I mean, I genuinely could not think of any other writer in the history of world literature uh, who had actually talked about his homosexuality with that kind of frankness, with the sole exception, I guess, of the Mughal emperor, Babur. Um, so I felt that apart from Babur, I could not find anybody else uh, in modern times who had written so frankly about his homosexuality in spite of being a married man. 
So I I was riveted, uh, but I I still did not consider it. Uh, you know, I mean, I still wasn't thinking about translating his work. And then uh, what happened was in June, my parents recovered from COVID. My sister recovered from COVID, and and I felt that because I was so busy taking care of the three of them, um, I decided that I needed to do something fun to 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 sort of you know uh, just uh, relax. Uh, and I decided, why don't I start by transla- translating his shortest short story, which is uh, The Senior Citizen. And um, so I translated that and I sent it to Shanton and I said, look, this is something that I've done. What do you think? And he said, this is very good. You should try another one. So then I translated uh, Bondhur Pontha. And then I sent that to him and I said, oh, you should do more. So then I took a very deep breath and I decided, can I then tackle, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, the novel. Um, so then this was a major undertaking. I mean, Rajoshi, there was a time when I felt as though I was doing my second PhD because it just required so much of, of uh, um, the very careful weighing of words. And, and so I was constantly consulting other people. Um, you know, what? how do I translate this word? How do I translate that word? I mean, it really became like a mini research project. Um, and so once that uh, translation was done, I sent it to Shanton again, and he said, this is great. Do you intend to publish it? And I said, well, I mean, I've never really thought about it. And he said, well, I think you should. So then I said, but then if I publish it, people will not know who Krishna Gopal Mollik is. So that would necessitate uh, an introduction. So he said, why don't you work on that introduction? So I started to work on the introduction. And by by the time I'd finished my introduction, I had a proper book-length manuscript ready. And... Because Niyogi had done such a good job with, with my previous book, uh, the one that I co-edited with, with uh, Tutun Mukherjee, Narivam, with it, I thought, let me just approach Niyogi again. If they don't like it, then I'll approach other people. But Niyogi should have the first refusal. And luckily for me, they accepted it. Um, so that is how Krishna Gopal came into my life. As to why I felt he should be translated... Oh, I think the answer is there in the previous answer. Um, There is, I think, in world literature, nobody quite like him. Because if you look at queer fiction across the universe, you will not come across anybody uh, who is uh, living the life of a conventionally married man with, uh, with a child and everything and still talking about his homosexuality with that level of frankness. Apart from, as I keep saying, the the notable exception of Emperor Babar. So I just thought that this is a very, very unique voice. Uh, and uh, and because we don't have enough um, sort of queer literature in regional languages anyway, uh, I felt that this author deserves, um, you know, a, a lot of attention, not only uh, across West Bengal, but my translation would make him available to those who don't know Bangla. And I felt this is something that was very, very necessary. I, I am very curious to know, there is a picture of uh, Molik, um, and it's credited to, I think, Durja Molik. So I'm wondering if this That's is the family. son. Yes, yes, oh. Durja Molik is the son. So did you get like a permission from them to publish? How did oh, you react? Oh, absolutely. I, I absolutely went to his place. And because the Niyogi had made it very clear that you need to have translation rights, so I went and saw him with, with my document and uh, 
And he asked me what was my interest in his father. So I said that, well, you know, I teach gender studies at my university. So therefore, I'm interested in the way in which his father, um, you know, apparently living this life of, of a very conventional man. Uh, but I, I think that he is perhaps playing around with the idea of masculinity as well in, in some way or the other. And I just uh, I just felt that, you know, I'm interested in the way in which your father negotiates masculinity as as a person who uh, who is doing I mean, who teaches gender studies. And he said, oh, OK, well, in that case, so I guess it should be fine. So it was a nerve wracking moment. But eventually, you know, I was uh, I was very happy when he put pen to paper on that agreement. Yeah, I'm thinking it must be a, like, a huge decision for him. I don't know how much he was familiar with his father's works or, or but, oh, he was and... very very familiar he was and i'll tell oh, okay. you i'll tell you why he was very familiar with with the sexual nature of his father's writing as well because um a few years uh, ago um uh, a kolkata based publisher called Putibhash, they brought out uh, a two volume set of Gopal Mollik's non-fictional well, as you know prose works Krishna Gopal's prose work but not all of his none of his novels were included in those two volumes his essays were included and I think all of his short stories were included all of his essays were included and remember that in those two volumes there is um, senior citizen there is uh, the difficult path so those short stories were there and uh, Dujjoy Mollik and his wife Shushama Mollik are credited in the in the uh, introduction of those two volumes. Uh, and uh, the editor mentions very clearly that these two people um, actively ferreted out these these short stories and these uh, these essays. So they were actively involved in the publication of those two volumes. And those two volumes contain queer short stories. So there is no way that they were not aware of this. Uh, and that's incredible because often, you know, family members are not very comfortable giving permission or uh, or withhold, uh, you know, copyright. So that that's mm. incredible, I think. Yes, uh, and also must you must understand that you know they they couldn't really say that nobody knows about this aspect of my father. So yeah. So uh, since you mentioned uh, these stories, the two short stories, the senior citizen and the difficult part, I was also thinking these stories are about desire of course but also about age and and ageism i feel like this is something that is not necessarily talked about or uh, written about uh, in queer literature at large so how, how why do you think firstly it's underrepresented i know you have you you had chapul badhuri come for the book launch i saw an image and i know that um, shopul badhuri's image was on the cover of your uh, that uh, the other book um, nari bhav which was published also by Miyogi, as you said so what is the role of age and ageism right now in queer literature but largely also in queer maybe politics usually when we think about queer movement or queer politics it's mostly about young people right so so is that something that bothers you how do you negotiate with that well, I mean, I don't think it is a matter of negotiation as much as, you know, sort of basically calling out the ageism that is very clearly there. I I think that um, ageism, of course, is not just, uh, you know, the unique uh, malaise of, of queer culture. It's, it's basically the malaise of all, you know, kind of cultures which involve gender and sexuality. Because, of course, the 
the normative idea is that you are only sexual, you know, between, say, you know, 18 and, and 32, uh, and after which magically you lose all your sexuality, and then from 32 onwards you subsist uh, as an asexual being. Um, and of course, we have, um, uh, you know, a, a demonization of, of uh, men or women who are perhaps above 40 and who still have their sexual desires. So, so you have men, I mean, in Bangla, for example, you have uh, phrases like Guru Vaishnav Himrupi. And in Hindi, you have, you know, Buddha uh, Satyagaya. Uh, so therefore, that kind of, you know, in English, you have the expression dirty old man. So therefore, uh, there is a certain kind of demonization of men uh, who remain, uh, you know, desirous uh, even after the age of 40. Till about 40, I think men are accepted as being desirous beings. But beyond 40, you are just labeled as a dirty old man. Uh, also, if you go to various um, hookup apps, uh, you are going to find that there will be several profiles who are going to say uh, no uncles. So therefore, this idea that, you know, men who are above 25 are not welcome. Uh, and it's very interesting how the how exactly what age qualifies you for the for the honor of being an uncle, uh, that that seems to be quite negotiable. You know, there are some people, 18-year-olds, uh, who are going to think that the moment you turn 25, you become an uncle. Uh, and, and uh, you know, so therefore, I'm sure very soon, you know, 17, 18-year-olds are going to think that once you turn 20, you become an uncle. Um, so, so anybody who is basically one year above your age is automatically an uncle. Um, so, so uh, there is a peculiar uh, fear of old age, uh, which is there in all cultures. Um, uh, but it is so therefore, you know, what is there in heteronormative culture is, is sort of imported into queer culture. And it's very clearly there, um, which is why I thought Krishna Gopal Mullik um, is such an important writer to take note of. Because here is somebody who's saying, you know, I am in, a, in my late 40s or in my early 50s. And I am sexual uh, and I am, you know, horny. Uh, and I think that is something which uh, I felt most people are, it's, it's a thought that most people are um, not very happy to engage with. So I think Krishna Gopal Molik is attacking that sense of what I call chrononormativity. I mean, it's not my phrase. There are others yeah. who have used it too. But it's a kind of chrononormativity. So therefore, you are not allowed to be sexual between 1 and 18 and then from 18 to 40, you're allowed to be sexual. And then 40 till the time you die, you become asexual all over again. So you are you are conventionally assigned your sexuality, be it heterosexual or homosexual, for about you know 20 years of your life. And before and after that, you're not allowed to be sexual at all. And I think that is a, that is a preposterous way of looking at human sexuality. Uh, and Krishna Gopal Molik is very much attacking that. I, I think it's a kind of an interesting, uh, perhaps, intervention that he's making. And I, I forgot when this yes. short story was written, but uh, now the word is perhaps daddy, uh, like which is a, you know, yes. even the, and there are different connotations of that word. But I'm thinking generally in the Indian sort of culture, uh, we have accepted Bollywood heroes who are in their 60s, you know, like, so there is a certain, definitely a certain sexual 
acceptance or a, like a hero worshiping that goes beyond that you know 40 age and asexuality of course it's an identity in itself so it's not as if you know one becomes some asexual at one fine day but what is interesting here in these in these short stories typically is the trepidation also of Mollik or the, or the voice of the writer who knows that okay this might so there is a fear which I found really interesting so there is a desirability but there is a reluctance to act on that desire uh, which means there's a sense of morality which is very much there it's on one hand he's very free and you know moving the mobility uh, and at the same time of course the mobility is not that great for him because he's like I think it's the difficult path where he's um, you know this this young uh, person actually is lost and he's helping him I find this in the contradiction very interesting that one hand in the heteroculture we do have a certain glorification of masculinity beyond a certain age but maybe that's not the case with homosexuality or bisexuality uh, for that matter uh, and, and there is a certain uh, there is certain recognition of icons like Jafal Badhuri but not perhaps in a way that's sexual, like you were pointing out. You know, it's more of a, a recognition of their achievements or um, what they have done, which is a great thing, of course. But I don't know how much that seeps into the question of uh, sexuality. And I was thinking, like, if you can tell us a little bit, and you touched upon this, the vernacular, but you are a professor of English. Uh, so I'm assuming you teach, you know, mostly English, but also some translations. Uh, do you teach any Bengali literature? Will you, will you teach Mollik now? Uh, how does the syllabus work in, in Kollan University? How much of freedom do you have to teach what you want to teach? Yeah, so basically, uh, the, the short answer is 100% freedom. Um, this is one of the reasons why I believe that Kollan University is slightly different from all the other universities in Bengal. Uh, in the sense that in Kulan University, we 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 are constantly changing the syllabus. Um, you know, all that we require is a postgraduate board of studies, and it's a very relaxed meeting always. So if I'm choosing one text uh, this year, and if I suddenly want to change the text, um, it just requires a, board, a postgraduate board of studies meeting, and, and the texts are changed. So therefore, um, I can choose absolutely whatever I want. Did I teach Bengali literature in translation? Yes, I did. So, so there was a time when I had to teach Indian literature in English, uh, and Indian literature in English and in translation. Um, so that is when I actually taught uh, Tagore's short story Ginni, which I had translated. I mean, which I had not translated, but uh, Shri Pramukhaji had translated in my first uh, edited book, which is the Muffled Heart. Um, and Ginni, uh, Shipra had done this amazing job. She had translated as the housewife, uh, and and I taught that short story in in the Indian literature, um, in English and in translation. That course is that a short story taught anymore? No, it isn't because later on some other teacher took up that course, and when somebody else teaches that same course, the teacher gets to bring to the course their favorite, you know, texts. However, having said that, I, I do teach a course called New Gender Studies, uh, and that is uh, focused on, uh, you know, masculinity, feminism, uh, queer. So, so all of this is accommodated into New Gender Studies. Do I see myself teaching Krishna Gopal? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think that's a, that's a very vain decision to make. You know, I'm going to teach my book. Uh, it almost, I find it a little embarrassing to say that, you know, I'm, I'm going to teach my own book. 
I don't know whether I will teach those texts, uh, but if somebody else teaches them, uh, that would be more satisfying rather than me promoting my own book in my own syllabus. That seems to me to be in slightly dubious taste. But if somebody else wishes to do that, I'll, I'll be more than happy. I would like to teach the work of other people. That seems to be the more decent thing to do. <laughs> yeah. Oh, by the way, I think Shipra Mukherjee was actually my teacher in Calcutta University. She was a guest lecturer uh, there. She used to be a teacher at Bhoidab Ganguly College in, in Belgoria. Uh, and now, of course, she's faculty at West Bengal State University, yeah, which is at yeah. Parashat. Yeah, I think then, then she was the faculty. Um, uh, she taught us, I think, Bama's Karakku, if I'm not mistaken. Um, Possibly. Yeah. Moving on, like, I was also wondering, like, when you think of Bengali vernacular, like, beyond maybe Tagore or Sharachan Chattopadhyay, like, the big names, you know, like, when it comes to queer, like, literature or people who even identify with these uh, terminologies, like, can you recommend uh, any... Bengali literature for our listeners or for me? Yeah, it's, it, well, it's all mentioned in the introduction. So in the introduction, yes, I know. In the introduction <laughs> yeah. there's a long list there. Yes. Um, yeah. So so all that you need to do is just start ordering the books from the introduction. It's all there. So so yeah, I mean, Tilottam Amojumdar is there. Uh, you know, I think Manavi Bandhapadha's novel is there. Um, Komal Chakraborty is there. So there are several authors that I've mentioned in the introduction. Because I, I knew that this would be... A, a question that would be asked people would want to read more bengali queer literature uh, and i i uh, made it an effort to include as many names as possible in the introduction which people could subsequently look up you know most of the contributions of names came from again shanton mitro so he is the one who said oh i think that name should go into the introduction that name should go into the introduction he he was very very um, uh, what shall i say uh, instrumental in the shaping of that list yes I'm curious to know what is Shanton doing now? Are they teaching? Are they? He is well. I mean, he he deserves to be teaching at a university, but he's he has no intention of leaving his current job, which is he teaches at a government school. His his reading remains as voracious as ever. He did a, an absolutely brilliant PhD under my supervision. I take no credit for it. Uh, it was all his work, and and he did an amazing job. Uh, what I would really want Shanton to do at some point is to perhaps consider publishing his thesis as a book, because I think a lot of people would want to read it because he's done a very detailed analysis uh, and an amazing survey of, of queer writing in India. So I would definitely want that to happen at some point. Well, who knows? So do I, because I think uh, my work yeah. is very English. It's very important work. Yeah, so that's why I want to engage more with people who are looking at vernacular literature, reading more vernacular literature, and in Bengali uh, specifically, also like we have so many different variations of Bengali. It's, uh, you know, so important to actually look at also, like you were saying, how do we translate like, you know, words which may look very different in, in Bengali. But when if there is just one word in English, it doesn't convey the variety of, of the language itself. Um, which actually brings me to my other question. Now, you mentioned, uh, or rather, I mentioned in the bio when, when I introduced you about your book, The Scholar, um, the novel. Uh, and I was wondering, and there, of course, I think you share with Monlik the, how should I describe it, the kind of relationship with Kolkata. Um, Monlik, of course, also talks about College Square in great detail. And you are right now teaching in Kollani. 
like when you look at Kolkata now, how how is the relationship? How is your relationship with the city? Also, what do you make of the hierarchy between, uh, let's say, Kolkata and other parts of West Bengal? Because even when you think of like, you know, movies, uh, books, usually it's always about Kolkata or Calcutta, as it was known earlier. And of course, there is um, Shotojit Rai's films on, on Darjeeling. So there is, of course, that romanticization as well. And it seems uh, because I was also I also interview activists from you know other parts of uh, West Bengal um, and Shumi from uh, Shumi Dash from uh, Kuch Bihar, then Harry um, from uh, um, Kolani. So there is a hierarchy, you know, like as to who gets funding, whose work is being published. So how does one come out of that while still showing appreciation for a city where one has grown up or learned so much about? Yeah, well, I, I think that also, I, I believe that there is also a certain normative way of presenting the city. So therefore, Kolkata will be associated with certain stereotypical. So Kolkata uh, also uh, has managed to, to a certain extent, romanticize itself. Um, so there is a certain romanticization of the of North Kolkata, for example, uh, of of the rickshaw, you know, of the trams, uh, of the narrow lanes, of houses on top of each other. So therefore, I think that um, you know, I find it very interesting how this kind of romanticization or exoticization works, um, because you know, if you look at Bollywood, uh, Bollywood tends to do this kind of exoticization of the Bangali. Uh, and then if you look at Bengal, then there is a kind of an exoticization that happens on the part of the South Calcutta inhabitant who exoticizes and romanticizes the North Calcutta. Uh, and, and there is a certain sort of, you know, intra-Kolkata politics that is also there, quite apart from the politics that exists between the urban and the rural. So, yes, of course, Bengali literature tends to be, um, you know, for the want of a better word, metronormative. Um, and this metronormativity is something which I think you can pretty much identify um, whichever literature you look at. I mean, if you look at French literature, it is overwhelmingly Paris fixated. If you look at British literature, it is overwhelmingly London fixated. Um, so therefore, that I think is just the way it works because of the very simple reason that people tend to get educated at urban centers uh, and they find publishers that are also based in the urban centers. So, so it's, 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 it's sort of inevitable. Having said that, um, you know, there have, of course, been writers who have tried to, um, you know, write about rural subjects, Bhutushan Bhattopadhyay being a very good example. Chattopadhyay, of course, he was based in Howrah, which is sort of, you know, which is a part of the metropolis, the bigger metropolis. Rabindranath Tagore, for example, you know, although he he lived in Jurashako, but he was also based in Shantiniketan. So there have been writers who have tried to move out of Kolkata, but but it is but mostly I quite agree uh, that uh, Bengali literature, much like much like literature in any other language, tends to be more metro normative. Um, but but also I think that the the queer aspect of Kolkata is not very often represented. So therefore, Kolkata still emerges as a heteronormative city. Uh, and I think which is why Krishnagopal Mollik is of such great importance, because he's the one who 
puts the queer into Kolkata. Uh, and that is something which we haven't seen much of. So that that is, you know, the way it works, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about The Scholar? Um, so The Scholar, it's, it's, it's a novel that uh, functions along two timelines. So you have, on the one hand, you have um, a Bengali who travels from Kolkata um, to do uh, research in America, in Austin, in the 1990s, and the experiences that he has there. And parallel to that, there is another narrative of, of a British man who comes to Kolkata in the 1920s um, as the part of, uh, of, uh, of a Vaishnavite religious organization, not to be confused with ISKCON. Uh, and so therefore he he comes to Kolkata and then of course he gets involved with uh, with uh, with a man in Kolkata and and you know however that works out uh, and uh, and the Bengali boy who goes to Austin he also discovers his sexuality therefore it's two timelines um, and eventually they meet but I won't tell you how. Yeah, I need to read that book because I haven't read that book. But I'm I, I, well, I think it is it is available uh, in the US. It's it's okay. it's on sale in the US, so you can probably order it on Barnes and Noble, uh, and and you'll you'll be able to get it. It's, strangely enough, it's not available in India right now, but it is available in the US. It's very strange. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm hoping I'm... that the second edition is going to come out at some point in India, but it's available in the US and in Australia, but it's not available in India. Oh, that's very yeah. strange. Yeah. But at least you can order a copy. That should yeah. not be a problem. Yeah. Uh, you you mentioned uh, Vaishnavite and you uh, you make that comment about Discord. I'm just curious to know. I didn't uh, I didn't send you this question, but then usually when we think about queerness in not just in West Bengal but also in Bangladesh, we keep referring mm. to Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, like in the oh, Vaishnavite. Yes tradition so is this something that seeps into your writing because you are both a professor but you're also a writer and you're a translator is this some kind of influence that maybe one cannot even like people who are like queer in this region and wants to have some kind of relationship with spirituality is this something that they can draw from without necessarily um let's say making it only about religion I, I think that it isn't, um, of course, there is no Chaitanya in my novel. Um, Krishna, however, plays a, a role. Uh, and, and I'm constantly struck by the way in which Krishna keeps appearing um, in, in much queer fiction. I'm, I'm forgetting the name of this other writer, but he also wrote a novel in which Krishna plays a very important role. He, he's actually diasporic. He lives in America. His name is going to come to me in, in a moment. Um, so, so Krishna seems to have um, a great deal of purchase uh, in sort of Indian literature, Indian queer literature. Um, but also, if you look at the way in which Krishna or or the way in which Vishnu is is uh, represented in Indian mythology, there is a lot of queerness in in Vishnu. You know, he he transforms himself into Mohini. Uh, you know, he famously has sex with Shiva. Uh, and the result of the union of Shiva and Vishnu is the god uh, Lord Ayappa. Um, so therefore, Lord Ayappa is referred to as Harihara Putra, so the son of Hari and Hara. Um, so I think that there is a lot of queerness that is already there um, in in um, in sort of mythology, Hindu mythology. And I think that people can draw 
Um, I mean, I, I would definitely want to recommend Ruth Vanita and Selinti Dubai's book, Same Sex Love in India. Because if you look at that book, I mean, they do such an amazing job um, in, in showing you the extent to which um, queerness can be identified um, in, in um, Indian culture uh, at large, um, including Mughal culture. Um, so, so that is something that is a book that I recommend everywhere. Although Ruth um, does not like the word queer, uh, and we we have a bit of a fight going on. Um, she she doesn't agree with the word queer, but I I think that queer is a word that perhaps describes best um, the the indeterminacy uh, of gender and sexuality that one finds in in Hindu mythology, and yeah. and in Indian culture in general. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think they don't use the word queer. They write about it in the introduction why they don't use. Uh, but it, but actually, uh, Vanita uses the the book word queer in her later book, Queering India. So uh, yes, much... and now she now she totally refuses. She says, you know, I I don't agree with that word. So so this is uh, Ruth Vanita has got a complicated relationship with the word queer. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but but I I think I think that I personally I use queer all the time because I think it it's a very generous term, uh, mm-hmm. and it is a term that allows me to talk about um, sexual indeterminacy, gender indeterminacy, mm-hmm. uh, and being a post-structuralist myself, I think that queer is 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 very very useful when you're talking about. Uh, the fluidity of gender, when you're talking about fluidity of, of sexuality, and also when you're talking about fluidity of identity in general. I think queerness is is moot. Yeah. Uh, this is my last question. Uh, you said that you teach a, a course called New Gender Studies, which is also the name of your Facebook group, which I think is very popular, yeah. has a wide outreach. Yeah. And it seems a kind of activism, like, you know, on the social media space. Can you tell us a little bit about that and whether this also uh, transformed into some kind of ground level activism or some kind of engagement that you have been doing in Kollani? Not so much ground level activism at Kollani, but but what I will do say is that, yes, of course, this is the course that I began teaching in 2009 and I would refer you to a book that was written by Rohit K. Dasgupta and Kosta Bakshi called um, I think it's called Queer, Queer Studies Queens. in India. Or oh yeah, huh? text. Yeah, I think yeah, I know what the book is. That's yeah, it. it's yeah, it's it's published by um, Orion Black Swan. Um, so I would so in in that book, you know, my course is given a couple of pages. So that book mentions my course, which was started in two thousand and nine. Um, I felt that this course was absolutely necessary because um, I was getting a little impatient with the way in which gender studies is normally taught. So if you look at any random university's gender studies uh, syllabus, uh, chances are it is going to be full of only cishet women. Right. So therefore, men don't find a place. Lesbians don't find a place. Trans persons don't find a place. Uh, disability hardly ever finds a place. Um, so therefore, it is mostly cis-het women uh, that dominate uh, the, the syllabus of, of gender studies. And I thought this was unconsciously patriarchal because when you are calling a course gender studies and when you're only teaching cis-het women, you're basically saying that only women have gender, which leaves men gender-free. 
Uh, and if men are gender free, then that is exactly the way in which patriarchy functions. Because in patriarchy, men are human. Men function as humans. So therefore, he is regarded as a neutral noun. He is not regarded as a masculine, neutral pronoun. He is not regarded as a masculine pronoun, according to patriarchy. So I felt that uh, in order for me to challenge that, that perception, I felt that I needed to design a course where queerness would be a part of it, where disability would be, play a part, where masculinity studies would play a part. So I wanted to give a slightly more rounded idea of gender rather than to fill my course with only narratives of uh, cis heterosexual women, because I felt that was not what feminism was aiming at. Um, and as far as ground level activism is concerned, I have been involved with uh, an extremely, extremely hardworking and, and a fantastic uh, NGO um, based in Kolkata called Sapo for Equality. Uh, and I have been uh, regularly called by Sapo for Equality. They have this brilliant um, uh, sort of course that they conduct every year. It's called Sexuality Academy. It's a residential course. And, you know, they they ask um, university college students to apply and they are all taken to this resort. And over a week, I think it's it's uh, a pretty intense series of lectures and, you know, activities and all of that. So they keep calling me. Um, so I'm very closely associated with Sapo for Equality. Um, and, um, and I have also on occasion worked with SWAM, which is uh, another feminist NGO. Um, so, so NGOs very often, uh, you know, um, involve me in their work, and and I'm more than happy to to be um, a part of their uh, activities. Yes, so that is the extent of my grassroots level activism. <laughs> yeah, um, and actually, the thing that that you said about gender studies, I'm thinking how it has transformed uh, over a period of time to an extent that now a lot of conservative people are attacking gender studies or the very idea yes. of gender here in the US, in yes. particular, and uh, also also in the UK. Hmm. Yeah, so there has been an hmm. overall shift in you know the way that it's seen so much that it's seen as a threat. Uh, in, in to the society to a certain mm. lobby in, in mm. particular. Um, any any last thoughts on the book? Um, anything that you want to add? On, on the book, I, I think that well, I, I think uh, that the book I felt was again necessary because it challenges a lot of normativities that are usually associated with queer literature. Uh, because I think this is something that I've said elsewhere as well, is that, uh, you know, there seems to be almost uh, a requirement from, from queer literature that it has to be sad. Uh, you know, people have to be suffering, people have to be miserable, people have to die, um, you know, preferably by suicide. Um, so therefore, that kind of, um, you know, doom, gloom, I sit in my room, that uh, idea of queerness is something that perhaps the heteronormative society finds very comforting so that they can look at sad stories about queer people and say, oh, you know, isn't it a shame how miserable they are? 
uh, and imply the fact that because they are heterosexual and they're heteronormative, they, they live in heaven. Um, so that uh, that sort of sense that, oh, you know, these poor people, you know, they have no fun in their lives. Whereas look at me, I'm having so much fun. I have um, I have a wife and I have three children with running noses, with diarrhea, uh, you know, isn't this fun? Um, uh, who wouldn't want this kind of life uh, of a nagging spouse and three children making my life miserable? So, so therefore, happy queer narratives are very thin on the ground. Um, and I felt that, you know, queer narratives that are shaped by a kind of joy, that they're shaped by a kind of, you know, just, just um, you know, a sense of thrill in, in experiencing, uh, you know, queer sexuality. I felt um, that was rather missing because the public seems to be much happier with uh, sad stories. And I think Krishna Gopal Mullik, whatever be the circumstances in his life, I think he's determined not to provide us with sad stories because Krishna Gopal Mullik has, you know, this astonishing sense of humor. Uh, and it is a sense of humor which, which always manages to... Um, produce a kind of joy, um, which I think sometimes perhaps queer literature lacks. So I think it's it's a it's a fairly positive contribution to to queer writing, and I and I think people should go and try it out. Thank you so much uh, for this conversation, and thanks to also uh, Niyogi Books for coming out with this yes. book and approaching yes. me for this interview and being patient with me. <laughs> Uh, as far as this interview uh, goes, I will... good things good things come to those that wait. Yeah. <laughs>